my dear fellow listeners to Republic Broadcasting Network. Today is the 18th day of February in the year of our Lord Jesus the Christ, 2024, or maybe more. And um, this is yours truly, Murr, and we have yours truly, com or chat and go as our chat room. And uh, please join us in there. And uh, I, I might as well do this now. I wanted to give out a couple other chat room addresses because things kind of changed. And um, so there is one, uh, unless they have another one for next week with um, Stephen Whitener's Thought Crime Live. I had made a chat room when he first started, but uh, another fellow got in there ahead of me. So we just let that roll. And now he's he's decided to close it. So it's number two, thoughtcrimelive.chatango.com. And um, let me see. I even put them down here. Okay. And also uh, have one for Michael Gaddy. And he's too busy, you know, what he's doing to pay attention to the chat room. And I'm not online on that day. So um, rebelmadmanradio.chatango.com is his uh, chat room and some people have found it and used it so you're welcome to go there and then of course after this show is the scorpion <laughs> the scorpion the scorpio ihclc dot com, and he's given that out before he knows it's there and and uh, of course he's busy with his show so and then um later in the evening is Rebel and the Renegades dot dot com. Uh, that's eight to ten uh, Central, nine to eleven Eastern. And um, so you're welcome to come in there and chat if uh, you know. And I'll post them then in the uh, Yours Truly Mer dot also, uh, so you can have them to save if you want to go there. And uh, uh, please support RBN. Uh, having a deficit here we need some funds you know everything runs 24 7 and it can become very uh you know tight uh, as everyone knows so um oh i did put them in the yours truly merchant dasha tango <laughs> so somebody says uh good to see uh mer approved chats <laughs> yeah i just ask no profanity you know Treat each other. It's a good place to practice the golden rule. You know, try to treat people the way you want to be treated. And actually, that's how we regain our telepathy, is by being direct. The universe doesn't hear negativity. So when you put all that static in there, it uh, it's hard to get the message through. Where if you're clear and above board, uh, things travel at the speed of thought, including tele-empathy, where we help heal, heal each other. And like um, Bruce Lipton and uh, his work, and we played a video here, how every cell, you know, is stimulated. And when you believe that you're sick, a doctor or someone else playing God tells you you're sick, you may even die because you'll have that whole community of cells believing that lie. So, um, and a couple other things uh, now. I had been talking about um, last week about Hitler and Mengele and the doctors and everything. And um, Harry Cooper, Shark Hunters, was on rents for his monthly visit on Thursday. 
and uh, there's some good good uh, news there. But he also, uh, Harry said it was something that he had mentioned before. I'm going to remember, no, not a righteous, not no, not one, you know. And so, just like not calling founding fathers of this country, but maybe framers, <laughs> but don't call anyone father. And they're men, just like today. And the ones that rise to power are very often godless and greedy. But as far as being normal men with drives, Mengele had um, a Jewish woman sterilized and was using her for sex. And then when he escaped to Argentina, I think it was in Argentina, somewhere there in South America, Ironically, she was there. They were, they had come to climb mountains, and uh, they came around a corner and ran right into each other. And, and then she, uh, well, mountain climbing, uh, fell off the mountain and died. So, uh, but the Mossad was after him all the time too, and may may have gotten him when he was sixty seven. He supposedly died of a heart attack in the surf, apparently. And and um, and Hitler, he you know. He meant well by his people and everything, but, you know, he had drives, too. And uh, he had at least one child, a daughter named Aldine, by Magda, Goebbels' wife. So, you know, we're all human, and none of, them, none of us are going to be perfect. And we hear things about Tesla, you know, but very clearly, Einstein... Who was a <clears throat> not not very nice guy, and was a fraud and a plagiarist and a liar. That's all. And we have so much of that in so many places in control in the world. And uh, I don't know. I have several clips from this one documentary, <clears throat> and I found it. Um, Jonas Alexis at uh, BT. Foreign Policy, I think it's called now, Veterans Today. And I guess he had published it in January also and then republished it. Or, or maybe I was just looking at an old <clears throat> old copy of the VT. But anyway, uh, this documentary, it's 40 minutes and 12 seconds, and we're not going to hear all of it, but we're going to hear a few chunks out of it to give you an idea of how this man was. Oh, and that was, that was another thing, you know. Uh, I guess the 11th is when... Chinese New Year was, although I think it started on the 4th, the celebrations. And this year is uh, Greenwood Dragon Year. And Dragon Years are very special and powerful. You know, the Chinese Zodiac is by 12 years goes around, not by the month. But they do go by lunar months. So that's why it's always the 13th lunar month, which is around the end of January or beginning of February. And uh, so we're going to do a little dragon slaying because I'm just so tired of hearing these lies repeated and uh, people accept it as truth. I got an email woman saying, um, one of my friends that emails me said that um, the rhetoric has changed. She listens to all these different things, uh, you know, different media sources. And before it was about the, uh, about the invaders, that it was about deporting them, sending them back. And now it's about accepting them how to settle them in our in our uh, communities and so um sam if you want to get ready we'll start with those uh 
those clips from that documentary, please. Albert Einstein is widely acclaimed as one of the greatest and most influential scientists in history. In 1999, Physics World, which is a British journal, ranked him the greatest physicist of all time. Similarly, the History Channel called Einstein the greatest mind of the 20th century. Physicist Brian Greene, writing in Scientific American, declared, Einstein has come to symbolize the purity and power of intellectual exploration. Two Einstein scholars have recently said that Einstein has left his mark not only on physics of the 20th century, but also on the public image of science and scientists, and on the cultural and political history of the 20th century, far beyond his area of expertise. The media and many popular books have largely refrained from expressing negative views about Einstein, primarily due to the widespread idolization of him around the world. Back in 2018, science writer Philip Ball of the British newspaper The Guardian discovered that Einstein said what many would consider racist statements about Chinese and Japanese people. Yet Ball defended Einstein by saying that even this famously humane and broad-minded scientist was inevitably a man of his time. Accordingly, we can't expect him, despite his visceral dislike of Nazism, to rise above a prevailing culture in which the open expression of prejudice was routine. We might look on it now with dismay, but to label it racism is to indulge a presentism that achieves nothing except making us feel superior. Yet doesn't Ball condemn both the statements and actions of figures such as Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong and Adolf Hitler? If the answer is yes, does this condemnation make him feel superior? These arguments don't follow logically because they lack coherence. Furthermore, if we absolve Einstein of any guilt regarding racism, what moral right do we have to condemn other historical figures who have expressed similar sentiments? Can we simply attribute their views to being products of their time? Or is it possible that figures like Einstein were adhering to an ideology? one that continues to exert a detrimental impact on much of the West. Based on the archival evidence, Ball admits that Einstein treated his wife, Milva Marek, miserably, that he considered her as his maid and housekeeper, and that she was neither to expect intimacy from me nor to reproach me in any way, and that Marek has to desist immediately from addressing me if I request it. Ball asserted that these statements are not expressions of generalized misogyny. It's evident that Ball makes an exception for Einstein, finding it appalling if anyone else were to say something similar. Ball said of physicist Richard Feynman, Feynman's reputation has undergone some recent reappraisal on the centenary of his birth, with a belated recognition of the shockingly demeaning things he says about women in his autobiography. Some have unconvincingly tried to brush these off as the product of their times, but it seems more likely they are a product of the macho persona Feynman liked to cultivate. But is Einstein an exception to the rule? Clearly Philip Ball is not presenting a coherent argument. The significant question at hand is this. 
can we genuinely attribute Einstein's views to being a product of his time, or is there another underlying factor at play? This is not a documentary about Einstein's life and career, nor is it an exhaustive account of his childhood. In fact, this presentation intentionally avoids delving into Einstein's early years due to its unnecessary length and detail. Instead, this short documentary aims to shed light on the darker aspects of Albert Einstein. Einstein once collaborated with the famous sexual revolutionary by the name of Wilhelm Reich. Reich was the man who perpetuated the organ energy, which is the idea that neuroses as well as physical illnesses such as cancer derive from a lack of organ energy in the body. Reich, we are told, proposed that this energy could be restored through treatments such as generating sexual organisms and sitting in an organ accumulation box. I think he meant it didn't orgasm. take a genius to realize that Reich was onto something unrelated to science and entirely focused on perpetuating his sexual revolution. Reich, an Austrian Jew, was a key figure in the sexual revolution, credited with coining the term itself. Among his popular works are The Sexual Revolution, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, and The Function of the Orgasm. Alongside figures such as Erich Fromm, Erich Erikson and Ernst Simmel, Reich belonged to a cohort of ideologues in the 1920s and 30s who, according to Elizabeth and Danto viewed psychoanalysis more as a social mission than merely a medical discipline. Reich established his network or organization, known as SexPol, an abbreviation for the German Society of Proletarian Sexual Politics. Reich writes in his book, The Sexual Revolution, we do not want to see natural sexual attraction, stamped as sin, sensuality fought as something low and beastly, and the conquering of the flesh, made the guiding principle of morality. If moral concepts with respect to sexuality ought to be eliminated, then almost anything is permitted, including sex with children, which Reich advocated in his book The Mass Psychology of Fascism. By 1932, Reich was so radical that Freud himself had to urge his followers to, quote, step against Reich. Anna, Freud's daughter, said, My father can't wait to get rid of him inasmuch as he attaches himself to psychoanalysis. That which my father finds offensive in Reich is the fact that he has forced psychoanalysis to become political. Anna added that psychoanalysis has no part in politics. <laughs> The narrative takes an intriguing turn in January of 1941, when Wilhelm Reich engaged in an almost five-hour discussion with none other than Albert Einstein. During their meeting, they delved into what Reich termed sex economy. Notably, when Einstein expressed concerns about the increasing anti-Semitism in Germany, Reich corresponded with him, asserting that he had uncovered specific biologically effective energy that exhibited behaviors differing from what was understood about electromagnetic energy. For Reich, this biologically effective energy could be used in the fight against the fascist pestilence. And this sexualized ideology would be a rival perhaps to the incipient atomic bomb. Reich also believed that sexual ideologies are like atomic bombs. They have the power to destroy lives. While the extent of Reich's influence on Einstein or vice versa remains uncertain, their comprehension of each other was evident. 
There's a moment when Wright confided in his wife, expressing his excitement about conversing with someone who comprehended the intricacies of these physical phenomena and grasped their implications immediately. Reich, in his desperate attempt to deconstruct morality, tried to use physics to justify his own sexual theories. This was called organ accumulator, but it simply didn't work scientifically. Einstein eventually distanced himself from Reich's experiment. Some suggest Einstein's decision stemmed from concerns about maintaining scientific credibility and avoiding alignment with Reich's theories. Reich later wrote, it was understandable that Einstein did not want to contribute to the collapse of his life's work, although this would have been demanded by strict scientific objectivity. While Reich's ideology failed to gain scientific acceptance, it undeniably became politicized. Moreover, Einstein did not really need organoscope to rationalize his sexual freedom. But the question for us still is simply this, was Einstein a plagiarist, a wife-beater, and a eugenicist? By 1912, Einstein was already on the road of sexual excess, despite the fact that he was married to Milva Merrick. Einstein met Milva at the Polytechnic in Zurich, where they both had a keen interest in physics. They eventually got married on January 6, 1903, but due to Einstein's sexual adventure and abuse, the marriage turned into a complete disaster. Einstein, like Charles Darwin before him, embarked on a sexual relationship with his cousin Elsa Einstein, who had been divorced since 1908 and had two daughters aged 15 and 13. This grieved his wife even more. Biographer Hans C. Ohanian writes that when Einstein arrived in Berlin, he quote, did not spend much time at home. Sometimes he would disappear for a week leaving Malva ignorant of his whereabouts. Malva suspected he was spending days and nights in the arms of the plump and eager Elsa. We do not know how Malva found out about the adulterous liaison. But we do know that in July, after a violent quarrel, she suddenly moved out of their apartment and with the boys went to live in the home of the Hyber family. On October 10, Einstein wrote to Elsa saying that Malva is the most sour sourpost that ever existed. I shudder at the thought of seeing her and you together. She will writhe like a worm if she sees you even from afar. Malva later complained that we are a bit unimportant to him and that we take second place. Malva's complaint was not without evidence. Einstein himself wrote to Elsa, I treat my wife as an employee whom I cannot fire. I have my own bedroom and avoid being alone with her. Writer Michelle Zakheim declares, quote, Malva had planned to accompany Albert to Paris, where on March 26, 1913, he was giving a lecture on the law of photochemical equivalence. But on March 14, Lisbeth Hertwitz, the daughter of family friends, wrote in her diary that she and her mother had visited Malva and were shocked to see Malva with her face badly bruised and swollen. Albert explained that it was caused by a dental problem. Milva would not answer her friend's inquiries. Albert traveled to Paris alone. Isaac Haim says that even after all the humiliation, Milva persisted in trying to hold her marriage together. Then Albert unleashed a list of unreasonable demands to Milva, which the Daily Mail called a misogynistic manifesto.
Quote, Albert decided that if Malva wanted to stay married to him, she would have to obey his rules. A. You will see to it, 1. That my clothes and linen are kept in order. 2. That I am served three regular meals a day in my room. 3. That my bedroom and study are kept in good order, and that my desk is not touched by anyone other than me. B. You will renounce all personal relations with me, except when they are required to keep up social appearance. In particular you will not request 1. That I sit with you at home, 2. That I go out with you or travel with you. C. You will promise explicitly to observe the following points in any contact with me. 1. You will expect no affection from me, and you will not reproach me for this. 2. You must answer me at once when I speak to you. 3. You must leave my bedroom or study at once without protesting when I ask you to go. D. You will promise not to denigrate me in the eyes of the children, either by word or by deed. Ever since you have been in Berlin, you have become quite nasty. You should know that people take an interest in the way the great man himself, of course, behaves. Shortly thereafter, Einstein wrote to a friend, Life without my wife is a veritable rebirth for me personally. He continued to humiliate his lovely wife throughout his life, saying things like, Had I known you 12 years ago as I know you now. I would have viewed my responsibilities toward you at that time quite differently. Milva Einstein declared, is and will forever remain for me an amputated limb. I will never again be close to her. I will finish my days far from her, feeling this is absolutely necessary. Zakheim writes, Milva still hoped that he might come back to her. Perhaps she thought that the longer he remained on his own, the better chance there was of finding a peaceful solution and keeping the family intact. After all, he had told her that he liked being a bachelor and that his autonomy revealed itself as an indescribable blessing to me. She could not believe that he was asking for a divorce. It could only mean that he wanted to remarry. In 1919, when the marriage between the two partners was finally over, Einstein's own statement seemed to have confirmed that he did indeed get involved in physical abuse. He specifically declared to the court that he had no accusations against the plaintiff his wife. During the marriage there have been numerous scenes because of differences of opinion where on the part of the plaintiff verbal and physical abuse occurred to which I, in a state of irritation, responded, it is true that I committed adultery. I have been living for approximately four and one-half years with my cousin, the widow Elsa Lowenthal, and since then I have had intimate relations with her. My wife, the plaintiff, has been informed that I have had intimate relations with my cousin since the summer of 1914. She expressed her indignations to me. Einstein's sexual exploration did not stop when he met Elsa. After four years of marriage with Elsa, he moved his sexual relativity to Bette Newman, his secretary. Prior to that, he also wanted to marry Elsa's daughter Ilse. Ilse told a friend, Yesterday, suddenly the question was raised about whether a wish to marry Mama or me. Albert himself is refusing to take any decision. He is prepared to marry either Mama or me. I know that a 
loves me very much, perhaps more than any other man ever will, he also told me so himself yesterday. But I have never wished nor felt the least desire to be close to him physically. A. Also thought that if I did not wish to have a child of his it would be nicer for me not to be married to him. And I truly do not have this wish. I do not know whether it really would be fair, after all my mother's years of struggle, if I were to compete with her over the place she had won for herself, now that she is finally at the goal. When the divorce between Einstein and Milva finally occurred, Milva never remarried. Albert, on the other hand, was only just beginning his romantic exploits. He continued his pursuit of women and his extramarital affairs long after his marriage to Elsa. Zakheim writes clearly, Albert had no patience with and very little respect for women. The only female scientist to whom he accorded a modicum of respect was Marie Curie, and even that he could not do without qualification, even from Elsa, he kept his distance. Once when she referred to the two of them as us, Albert retorted, talk about you or me, but never about us. Arguably, the most shocking claim, based on evidence from Zakheim, suggests that Einstein abandoned his only daughter, Liesel, purportedly due to the belief that she was mentally handicapped. Einstein's younger son, Eduard Ortiz, born in 1910, developed schizophrenia as a young man, apparently in consequence of a disturbing love affair with an older woman. After Milva's death in 1948, Teet was placed with foster families and then again confined until his own death in 1965. Einstein made a quick visit to Teet at the Burgosli in 1933, before leaving for the United States. After that, he broke off all contact and sent no letters. Okay, thank you. And we'll learn about his plagiarism when we come back from the break. Thank you, Sam. Listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Real news, real talk, real people. Because you can handle the truth. Homeowners, are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party 
property and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not, or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Email Tom at republicbroadcasting.org. T-O-M at republicbroadcasting.org. My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it, and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumer's house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get, and you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Health Simple with Colorado Shioji. Fact bit number one. What goes in must come out. Whatever we ingest, breathe in, or transfer by contact must be expelled. Expelled directly as burned calories, through perspiration, respiration, or expelled via urinary and gastric channels. Every element that is not properly used or removed by our bodies become toxins. And toxins, as we know, are causal to every disease and ailment. Toxins are what makes us subpar, unable to be at our best. Be your healthy best by cleansing your body of daily and deeply embedded toxins. Live stronger, and we hope live longer. Shilajit, legit Shilajit, that is, like Colorado Shilajit, is perhaps the greatest homeopathic whole body remover of toxins made by Mother Earth. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. finish that section and as promised we're going to learn i think this is the part about plagiarism if you want to start that sam okay sorry about that yeah i, I might be wrong that might but i'm pretty sure that's the plagiarism part okay it's 22 minutes yep Comment from Ackman and oxman they declined be a spokesperson but after business insider had emailed its findings to oxman Ackman posted a response on X in which he promised to conduct plagiarism reviews of MIT's leadership. The issue of plagiarism has been a prominent topic in recent years. For instance, Jewish billionaire Bill Ackman, known for his outspoken nature, strongly criticized Claude Gay, a woman of color who was formerly the president of Harvard. Ackman alleged that Gay had plagiarized in her doctoral dissertation and further accused her of anti-Semitism, claiming she did not take adequate action against anti-Semitic incidents at Harvard during the Israel and Hamas conflict that began in October 2023. 
consequently, Gay was eventually dismissed from her position at Harvard. Interestingly, just a few days after Claude Gay was removed from her position, Business Insider meticulously documented that Neri Oxman, the wife of billionaire Bill Ackman and a professor at MIT, also faced allegations of plagiarism in her dissertation. What added to the controversy was Ackman's response, accusing Business Insider of being motivated by anti-Semitism. This suggests a concerning double standard, where Ackman feels justified in accusing others of plagiarism, yet alleges bias when the same scrutiny is applied to his family. This incident raises questions about underlying ideologies at play. It is important to note that such ideologies have persisted over time. There is a hesitancy among some writers and scholars to document allegations of plagiarism against figures like Einstein, possibly influenced by concerns related to anti-Semitism. Addressing these issues calls for a fair and unbiased approach in evaluating claims of plagiarism across the board. So, let us take a brief look at Einstein's plagiarism. Mathematician Roger Schlafly has recently resurrected the long-forgotten argument, suggesting that much of what is attributed to Einstein's work might actually have originated from others. According to Schlafly, the celebrated mathematician Henri Poincaré and physicist Hendrik Lorentz had explored the realm of relativity long before Einstein delved into the topic. This argument implies that Einstein popularized these concepts without duly acknowledging their original proponents. This point was articulated by a British mathematician and historian of science, Sir Edmund T. Whittaker, 1873-1956, who wrote in his work, A History of the Theories of Ether and Electricity, that the equation E as MC2 was the creation of Lorentz and Poincaré. Einstein's friend and colleague Max Born had even tried to persuade Whitaker not to publish this opinion. But Born himself later admitted that it was highly plausible that Einstein got his idea from Poincaré. Similar points were made by Russian physicist A. A. Logunov in his book Henri Poincard and Relativity Theory. It was after he was confronted with this fact by Whitaker that Einstein hoped that posterity would give Lorentz and Poincaré some credit to the theory. As biographer Albrecht Folsing puts it, After nearly half a century, this was the first time that Einstein ever mentioned Poincaré in connection with the special relativity theory. Biographer Dennis Bryan, however, declared that the charge that Einstein got some of his work from somewhere else has little weight. The evidence, no one, not even Poincaré, argues Brian, has ever charged Einstein of plagiarism. But Brian failed to mention that Lawrence came close to saying that Einstein snatched relativity out of his hand. Lawrence said, Einstein simply postulates what we, Lawrence and Poincaré, have deduced. Schlafly argues, On every essential part of special relativity, Poincaré published the same idea years earlier, and said it better. It was Lorenz's and Poincaré's work, not Einstein's, that led to time being considered the fourth dimension. Schlafly continues to say that while historians prefer to credit Einstein for the theory, no one can dispute the fact that Poincaré discovered all the elements of special relativity with help from Lorenz and others, 
published them before Einstein and developed a theory that was either identical or observationally equivalent to Einstein's. Einstein's 1905 paper in particular fails to cite any references to the scientific literature. The failure is extremely odd since the best mathematical physicists in Europe had been writing papers on the subject for 10 years and Einstein did not cite any of them. I had myself muted, uh, sorry. Yeah, I opened up the uh, video just to see. Uh, anyway, yeah, that was his um, about plagiarism and you see how it tied in with the, the Jews and the MIT and the Harvard and the plagiarism today. And, uh, you know, not for you, Goyam, but for us, uh, we will do it. You know, in fact, we'll steal your work. So, um and if you want to move that up to the next one, I think it's 32 minutes, something. Oh, okay. And uh, this, I think, is past determinism, but it's about more about the uh, E equals MC squared and Lenin. So go ahead, Sam. Objections to this documentary may arise, with critics suggesting that Einstein could not have plagiarized the work of Lorentz and Poincaré due to his purported lack of knowledge about their contributions. These people claim that Einstein worked in isolation with limited access to physics literature. However, this assertion is inaccurate. Maurice Solovine, a mathematician and philosopher who collaborated with Einstein, contradicts this notion. Solovine openly admitted that both he and Einstein enthusiastically studied Poincaré's 1902 book for weeks. Moreover, Einstein himself suggested that he had read Poincaré's and Lorentz's work meticulously. Jewish scientists like Gerald Holton, Abraham Pies, John Stackel, among others, have quickly come to Einstein's defense, saying that though Poincaré and Lorentz only discussed special relativity philosophically, Einstein came to the conclusion scientifically totally false. If you are physicist and mathematician, go check the historical evidence and see if those Jewish scientists are right. A classic example would be the general relativity priority dispute, which involved theoretical physicist Friedrich Winterberg of the University of Nevada and three other scientists, Leo Corey, Jürgen Wren, and John Stachel. In 1997, Corey Wren and Stackel wrote an article entitled Belated Decision in the Hilbert Einstein Priority Dispute, saying Einstein did not plagiarize on the work of mathematician David Hilbert. The authors also claimed, or suggested, that it wasn't Einstein who plagiarized because Hilbert corrected his paper after seeing Einstein's paper. According to Winterberg, this is completely false. The following long quotation is from Wikipedia. Winterberg published a refutation of these conclusions in 2004, observing that the galley proofs of Hilbert's articles had been tampered with. Part of one page had been cut off. He argued that the removed part of the article contained the equations that Einstein later published and alleged that it was part of a crude attempt by some unknown individual to falsify the historical record. He alleged that science had refused to print the article, and thus he was forced to publish it in Germany. 
Winterberg's article argued that despite the missing part of the proofs, that the correct crucial field equation is still embedded on other pages of the proofs, in various forms, including Hilbert's variational principle with correct Lagrangian, from which the field equation is immediately derived. Winterberg presented his findings at the American Physical Society meeting in Tampa, Florida, in April 2005. What we observe here is that in order for Corey, Wren, and Stachel to challenge the notion that Einstein could not have worked in isolation on some of his papers, or that he derived ideas from various sources, including Hilbert, they had to give a redacted version of the Hilbert equation, not the complete work. This dismissal would undermine their perspectives entirely. It's worth noting that Corey, Wren, and Stachel's paper was published in Science Magazine, Winterberg late wrote, It has long been known that Hilbert had obtained these equations before Einstein. Wren is quoted in the Washington Post of November 14, 1997 with the statement, I had personally come to the conclusion that Einstein plagiarized Hilbert. But it's okay to steal from Nagoyam. Because we must look like we are the smartest and we know everything. Wink, bay. Yeah, Sam, if you want to advance it to the 36-minute mark there, we'll hear a little conclusion and from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn about lies. Contained the Ricci invariant, which enters Hilbert's variational principle. His field equations and the variational principle from which they follow are still in the proofs but not his abbreviation for the variational derivative, containing the trace term missing in all of Einstein's previous papers. Some scientists hesitate to engage in discussions about the possibility of Einstein being a plagiarizer due to the fear of being labeled as anti-Semites. What good will it serve, those scientists seem to reason, to expose Einstein if their lives and livelihood will be in jeopardy? It might be high time for prominent scientists to adhere to historical and scientific standards, embracing a commitment to truth, honest research, and the exposure of frauds and malpractice wherever they may surface. Are popular scientists courageous enough to confront this issue? Let us conclude with the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn himself. Our way must be, never knowingly support lies, Having understood where the lies begin, step back from that gangrenous edge. Let us not glue back the flaking scale of the ideology, not gather back its crumbling bones, nor patch together its decomposing garb, and we will be amazed how swiftly and helplessly the lies will fall away, and that which is destined to be naked will be exposed as such to the world. Yeah. So, uh, there you have it. So it depends on truth, and uh, we, we try to be the truthful ones, and it's important that we do, and that we recognize the first commandment being broken here. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They put these ugly, deviant, idiotic liars, pedophiles, and put them on a pedestal and expect you to worship them and to follow what they do and to want to be rich like they are. Because no matter what, you want money. 
well, we don't operate that way. And we're starting to realize more and more how important that is. Now, um, Veterans Today also had a thing at the beginning of each of their articles, which I want to read. BD condemns the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians by USA slash Israel. 280 billion U.S. taxpayer dollars invested since 1948. I bet it's more than that. In U.S. Israeli ethnic cleansing and occupation operation. Oh, boy. I-E-C-O-O. I guess that would be 150 billion direct aid, quote, unquote, and 130, yeah, 130 billion in offense, quote, unquote, contracts. And the source is Embassy of Israel, Washington, D.C., and U.S. Department of State. So they tell on themselves, you know, just like uh, Mike Gaddy going to the National Archives and other researchers, and there they lay it all out. There's, you know, uh, they're probably going to have to burn those places if they get a half a chance anywhere that tells the truth. But there was um, another article they had that I thought was interesting. Um, and um, I believe Jonas Alexis posted it, but it's from uh, Joaquin Hagavian, Hagavian, however you pronounce it. And he has some lengthy works he's done. And this one's entitled, The Rothschild Deep State Cabal is Imploding. And he quotes uh, Jefferson, Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, although it should be property, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So, um, but it's interesting, um, I was listening to Chris Hinckley, and I had called into his show, it's, you know, last couple minutes, because someone had sent this preacher to call into his show, and um, this preacher calls him a liar, because he was telling the truth, <clears throat> and this preacher has, a, you know, the Statue of Liberty on his side, and and this stuff, so... Um, you know, I mentioned that uh, Jefferson didn't even know he had been appointed to office. He had just come back to clear up details, settle his affairs, and get back to France where he was having an affair with a married woman. And the next day, um, Chris dove into the uh, more about Jefferson and how the Declaration of Independence seemed to be formed after uh, a divorce case which he had won. I think he won it, but there was only like one divorce granted in like, I don't know, however many years. They're very strict about that. This was still the law out of England. So we can see how the affairs of all of us uh, between each other is constantly <clears throat> sort of set in turmoil. So there isn't any safety there isn't anything you can rely on husband and a wife it's a rare thing it seems these days I'm hoping it's improving but where they form a family and and the man is the head of the household he's he's the leader he's next to God that's how it is and the wife and mother and the children are subservient to him 
That's why they go after the men, especially the white men, because they're more likely to be Christian and follow these examples. And then that, of course, would ruin any raising of the next generation if you can keep each generation so infantile, which is what it actually amounts to. Constantly afraid of uh, not being cared for. And that's the thing with the subconscious, too. Um, the subconscious looks for safety and safety in a group. And uh, it was posted to Republic Broadcasting about Jason Kristoff, an interesting video in there. And he had been Ingrid's guest, and I called in and lectured him, and she told me I was, and I was. And I didn't apologize because there was something smarmy about his voice. Sorry, I didn't know who he was from Adam. I asked God if I should call in. He said, yeah. <laughs> and I asked him to give me the words to speak, and he did. And they weren't totally appreciated. But what was interesting was the result of that conversation, how he went into depth about how, unless you uh, have a website and you have written books and all this, it, it, you can't have people come follow you. Well, I don't want people following me. But I don't want people following him or anyone else either. I want them to follow Christ. I want them to think for themselves. So in this video, he, um, uh, being an influencer, this is the big buzzword these days, and he had some supposedly teen influencers. They look older than teens to me, though. But anyway, the um, selfie haven or heaven or whatever it was, and so they had this bag of different things and they were to go around with these different objects and take selfies of themselves on these different settings they had. And by saying certain words, um, they ended up doing the exact same selfie he had done when he set this whole thing up before that and showed that it was the same thing where they ended up all uh, deciding to use the watermelon swing or they sit on the swing and they have an ice tray and it's tray cool and, he planted all these ideas in their heads. Well, how come there's so much room in their heads for all these ideas? Don't they have any of their own? Now, haven't they studied anyone? No. You know, because the subconscious wants to be safe and wants to be in a group. And that's what they've boiled us down to. So that you run around in the little communitarian groups and are afraid to think or breathe on your own. And... Um, so uh, anyway, you know, he's a, he's a good man, he, you know, TV and alcohol and coffee he was saying how it's important to get away from them. But part of what set me off was his saying that he, uh, you know, worked with rich people and made a lot of money, getting them in shape. But then they didn't want to give up their addictions. But just something about I guess where it couldn't be video. It was voice it was audio. <clears throat> he had to get across his uh, smarminess. <laughs> and that is a word. You can look it up, smarmy. Yeah. To, uh, you know, get get people to follow what he's saying. And, you know, there's a place for that, I guess. You know, whatever. But there again, it's just a false leader. And that's, that's how I see it anyway. But um, this article with the uh, Rothschilds is pretty interesting. Um. We know a lot about this history, and and um, you see more of it, and know it's been going on forever. And and the uh, Rothschild women—they're never to be in power, but 
they breed very closely in breeding and marry within the family and and very often you don't know that they are Rothschilds. Now, um, Amazing Polly, it was interesting, one of her videos, uh, a woman from Israel, so Jewish, of course, she's living in Israel, and uh, when, was it Richard uh, Sassoon? No, what's the other one? Anyway, he had to do a video de a deposition um, about the... Uh, you know, the, um, um, with the opium, you know, the um, problems. And uh, there was a, I think it was in Oklahoma, <clears throat> a place they had built uh, rehab. And and so they were being sued. And basically what it turned out to be was most likely just money from one Rothschild pocket to another. But this woman pointed out, this woman in Israel pointed out to, uh, to uh, Polly, and then uh, she had a video too about it, and it was, it was interesting. Her walking around her apartment, and the breeze blowing through out there in the desert in Israel, and the curtains blowing around, and but that the um, wife of the one that was the manager, president, whatever of this rehab was a Rothschild. So you can see how they've got got their bases covered wherever there's influence and money to be had, but keep the populace in fear, the goyim in fear. Yeah, that's how it is. So, but it's interesting, very interesting. But I also wanted to say something, too, about all the different shows on RBN and how good it is and how uh, part of what's wrong with me, I've stayed up almost all night uh well, trying not to fall asleep, listening to all the things I'd missed. <laughs> and um, it was a really great show, uh, Rebel Madman Radio, with, um, along with Phil Turney as a guest was Kathy um, Meskel, I think her name is. I have to check me on that. But what a woman, what a patriot, what a uh, determined woman. And they have made this beautiful monument to the USS Liberty survivors and telling the story of it on this monument and uh, so you have to listen to that but we'll be back after the top of the hour with some more babbling from yours truly
Bolton for Ease Off. I know so many of you are finding our EZ4 carcass drop and lift an essential tool for your meat processing operation, but today I want to spotlight four of our new products. First, our right height hog cradles with steel or aluminum frames. Our customers love this back-saving innovation that enhances sanitation and speeds production. Next, our beef cradles with stainless steel or aluminum frames eliminate rust and corrosion. We hope you'll compare our quality and prices for this essential part of your processing line. Our cradles are especially effective when used with our power skinner. And finally, our hook tumbler will keep your hooks clean and polished. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC, 417-932-6419. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. 